has wrecked any me. Built a life first from now on. This is Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the TV we're obsessed with. Right now, that's The Expanse. I'm Jonathan Gitlin, and this week we're joined by my colleague and space reporter extraordinaire, Eric Berger. Eric and I chat about the show and what current plans to colonize the solar system look like. We also have an interview with Stephen Strait this week, who plays Jim Holden in the show. But first, a quick recap of this week's episode. You didn't mention any of this. There wasn't any time. We need to find the source of that shout before Cortazar leads Zaws to it. We started to see some of the human fallout from the battle above Ganymede. It centers on the story of Praxidike Meng, an agricultural researcher working on the moon to design better soybeans. Meng wakes up in the hold of a freighter carrying refugees to Tycho Station, but there's no sign of his daughter, Mei. Mei, looking for me, daughter Mei. She here? Dinner child here, Belta Loda. Things get worse for him when the captain of the freighter airlocks all of the Earther and Martian refugees, including his friend Doris. Where's Dawes? Don't know. Let me check my pockets. You're going to tell me everything he said. Anderson Dawes managed to escape Tycho with the protogen scientist Cortazar last week, but Naomi and Drummer have managed to track down the protomolecule transmission that Cortazar was listening to. It's coming from Ganymede. You don't seem eager for the answer. Does it make you happy to know there's more of that stuff out there? If it is, it is. It's better to know. The crew of the Rossi start looking into Protogen's activity on the Jovian moon, which leads them back to Praxidike Meng. I promise I won't say anything to anyone. Just please don't hurt me. We're not going to hurt you, but you do need to answer some questions. It turns out Meng's daughter was being treated for a genetic disease by Lawrence Strickland, one of the company's scientists. What's more, it's unlikely that May or Strickland were killed when the dome was breached. Finally, the factional infighting within the OPA took an ugly turn on Tycho. I have stolen your secret, Fred Johnson, and I am giving it to the belt. Dawes, it turns out, has plenty of support on the station, and this week they made their move on Fred Johnson and Drummer. Now, let's hear from me and Eric. Hey, how you doing? Hi, Eric. Good, good to hear from you. So let's talk about The Expanse. How are you finding the show so far? It's great science fiction. I really have been enjoying it. I keep saying this, but we're in a bit of a golden age for kind of for fiction dealing with humanity colonizing the solar system. And certainly this seems to be the best kind of TV look at that, I think. Uh, there was another miniseries a couple of years ago called Ascension about a generation ship. I don't know if you saw that one. I saw a little bit of that one, but, but not a whole lot. Right. I think this kind of reflects the fact that over the last 15 or 20 years, there's been this real movement among part of the spaceflight community that the real purpose of exploring space is, is not really the flags and footprints model mm -hmm. that we had during the Apollo era, where you go to the moon, put a flag in and you know win the Cold War. It's more like if we're going to go up to the space we ought to find something useful to do there. We ought to live off the land and we ought to stay. You know, we shouldn't do these one-off missions. There ought to be a purpose and that purpose, you know, is colonization. Given what we see on the show is 200 years in the future, do you think that's a reasonable extrapolation from where we are now? It's really hard to say. 200 years is a long way off. 200 years is a long way off. You know, 100 years ago, we were, you know, running around in cars and had just started flying airplanes. And I actually looked this up and 200 years ago, we didn't even really have science fiction. Well, when did Jules Verne come on the scene? Because he was one of the really the first. It's mainly a 19th century thing. There's a couple of books from the 18th century that the figure could count. But when you think about it, I suppose with, with science in the 18th century also wasn't quite where we are now. So that's one way to look at it. But another way to look at it, which is a little more discouraging, is to think about the fact that Armstrong and Aldrin landed on the moon in 1969. Yep. And now five decades later, we haven't been back to deep space since. And so there's part of me that believes pretty strongly that the reason for that is 
if you're going to send humans into space, the moon is probably about the only place we can go with the existing technology we have. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be a long time before we venture much beyond the moon. Does anyone have credible plans to start colonizing Mars, for example? The short answer to that is no. None of this, in my opinion, really happens without NASA funding. When Elon Musk released his plans at an international conference last September. You know, he, he had these great drawings of this, you know, spacecraft with 43 engines, the interplanetary transport system, and, and launching from Mars and, and landing on Mars. And it's great stuff, but it's science fiction. And he acknowledged during that speech and afterward that, you know, to do something like this, he's going to need a government partner. And since, you know, his company is based in the United States, legally, that government partner almost has to be the United States. And you're not going to get some kind of major exploration program into deep space without participation of NASA. And so he's going to have to get NASA eventually on board with his plans, and, and they're just not at this time. NASA does not have any plans to colonize space. That's not really w what they do. Right. Their current baseline is to send some humans to Mars in the 2030s. Frankly, they don't have the funding for that. And I think a lot of Congress recognizes that. Um, certainly the incoming Trump administration recognizes that. And it seems very likely they're going to refocus NASA's human exploration efforts over the next couple of decades back on the moon and not looking outward toward Mars. And then you sort of get into some of the more fringe efforts to send people to Mars. But the reality is that the technology doesn't exist. The people who have the money to do this, the government of the United States, and a few other space agencies around the world and China, don't have any interest in colonizing Mars. And so it's really, in, in my view, it's something that's on the back burner now. So what you're saying is that the Mars One people aren't credible. <laughs> that would be a polite way of saying that they're full of it, yes. Am I right in saying there was uh, something about the UAE has a Martian colonization plan? Yeah, they have a 100-year plan to colonize Mars, to work together with international that collaboration. Seems, that seems more realistic than anything I've seen from anyone else so far. Well, I like their timeline. I think that's much more realistic to talk about sending colonies to Mars in 100 years. But it's just words. I mean, it was a couple of amusement rides at one of their international expositions there. And uh, there's just not much behind that effort, I don't think. So moon colonization first, then. Do you have any, any hopes that people might be traveling to the belt? Any manned missions? Let's talk about the moon first. Okay. Because I do think that's where all the action is going to be. And if you look in the new space community outside of SpaceX, which has their flashy Mars plans, almost everyone else in this business is interested in the moon. And there's a simple and compelling reason for that. And that is that there is no business case to go to Mars now. There's just not. There's nothing on Mars that we don't have here on Earth in abundance that you could send people to Mars or even robots to Mars to bring back. But the moon, there is a compelling business case for the moon. And it starts with the lunar with water at the lunar poles, which could be put to interesting purposes. You could do solar arrays on the moon and beam power back to Earth. You could put radio telescopes on the moon and do interesting observations. And, and essentially, from a geopolitical standpoint, the moon is the next high ground. You know, Right now, the high ground is geostationary space. But cislunar space and the moon is the kind of the next step beyond that. And that's why I think you're going to see some competing interests between the United States, China, and some of the other powers for the moon. So some of those seem like you could probably do most of that with some of those robots. Like, do you have to have someone on site if you build a, a radio telescope array on the dark side? Right. So you could probably do a lot of that with robots. But, you know, no Buck Rogers, no Bucks, which basically means to have a really robust
And so it's easier to do if you have problems, you can come back from the moon. We learned that in Apollo 13. And so anyway, so to get back to this, the, the fact is there is a pretty strong business case. And it's very interesting. The last day or so, it's come out that Jeff Bezos, uh, who is building a fleet of very impressive rockets and obviously has no shortage of funds. You know, SpaceX relies a lot on investors, a lot on NASA contracts. Blue Origin to date is almost entirely self-financed by Bezos. And when you've got $50, $60 billion from Amazon, you can do whatever you want. And he is he's doing a lot of interesting things. And, and he has come out now and said he thinks that the next clear step is to go back to the moon to send up a bunch of supplies there and eventually build up a lunar colony over time. And that's where he sees the business case. That's where a lot of other companies sort of see the business case. And so I think, you know, over the next 10 to 20 years, you're going to see the development of some kind of a lunar colony. And it may be tended year round. It may not. But there's a lot of reasons why I think that makes sense. And that would be the precursor for any kind of expansion outward, either to Mars or to the asteroids. Using that as a base instead of trying to launch Saturn fives from Earth. That's exactly right. I mean, the killer app would be is if you could reasonably easily get at the ice in these permanently shadowed craters at the South Pole, if you could turn that into propellant, the liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, then you could fill up your spacecraft for journeys deeper into space much cheaper than you could if you were trying to launch all that fuel off the surface of the Earth. Presumably, once we start having people actually live on the moon, it's going to be a lot easier from that point to learn more about the rest of, of the system because it's easier to get to. NASA sent out a series of interplanetary probes that have done some really great work. Yes. You had Galileo in the 1980s and early 1990s looking at the Jupiter system and all of its interesting moons. Cassini for the last decade and have to shed a tear because Cassini is going to die later this year, but has, has done a fantastic job of studying the Saturn system, Enceladus, and the other interesting moons and rings there. And then within just the last couple of years, you've had the Dawn spacecraft, which has gone to the belt mm -hmm. and looked at Ceres in particular and confirmed some of the hypotheses of scientists that there was a fair amount of water beneath the surface in the form of ice. And so we do know a lot more about these worlds, and there's additional efforts to learn more, to identify what useful resources out there, what might be interesting places to live. And actually, as it turns out, probably, you know, when you're looking at the most habitable places in the solar system beyond Mars, you know, it's probably not Ceres. It may be like a, a Callisto, a moon uh, around Jupiter, but it, it might just be Titan, the, a moon around Saturn. Now, Titan's surface is very cold, but it has an atmospheric pressure at the surface, about one and a half times that of the Earth. And so you could walk outside in a snowsuit, breathing apparatus on Titan, and be just fine. You could make it. It would be a lot colder than Antarctica, but you know, your, your blood's not going to boil out of your skin because there's a, a surface pressure. So we're learning a lot more about these worlds that might one day play into some kind of expanse-like setting where you have Earth, Mars, and then everything else out there. They actually, in fact, in Judge Dredd's universe, they use Titan as a penal colony for judges who've, who've committed crimes. They said they, they, they fit them with breathing apparatus, but no spacesuits and send them out there to, to mine methane. <laughs> well, it's very cold, but it you is. could do that. Well, that's, you know, <laughs> don't be a megacity one judge gone rogue in that case, if you don't like the cold. So what is going to drive us to the asteroids, you <laughs> might ask? Yes. And there is a compelling belief within the aerospace industry that asteroids have a ton of value. NASA for a while was planning a manned asteroid mission, correct? Has so, that been in the list of things that they change every three months? This was an ill-conceived idea. So <laughs> the plan was you would launch a robotic spacecraft, go out and grab an asteroid, relatively near-Earth asteroid, small one, and bring it back to the vicinity of the moon. And then you could send astronauts up there on an SLS rocket and Orion spacecraft and float around and touch it and say, oh, wow, isn't this cool? 
that mission is still on the books nominally, but no one in Congress really likes it because it's kind of dumb uh, on the face of it. And uh, the new administration is it's widely believed that they're going to chunk it. There still probably will be some kind of a robotic mission to an asteroid or something like that, but the idea that it's going to be brought back to the moon. They're already doing OSIRIS-REx, which is this, this mission that launched last year to go up, pretty innovative way, reach out to an asteroid, grab some material, and then bring that back to Earth to help us understand this what asteroids are. Is that more complicated sampling than the probe a few years ago that used aer- aerogel to collect samples? The Stardust mission, which went to a comet, was, was incredibly complex and interesting, but it basically flew through the comet's tail and gathered some material and brought it back. And Lee Hutchinson and I got to go see those aerogels recently, and it was pretty cool. But the OSIRIS-REx mission has this arm capture mechanism that's really complicated. It's going to be fascinating in I think it's three or four years when it finally catches up and they do the sample acquisition. It sounds like actual asteroid mining. It's sort of a precursor to that. NASA's not really on board with asteroid mining, but there's a lot of companies out there that look at the metals and asteroids and say, wow, there's $5 trillion worth of you know, rare earth metals on a single asteroid if we pick the right one. Wouldn't it be great if we could mine all that stuff and bring it back to Earth and be zillionaires? The thing that worries me about that your average space tech bro getting it wrong and dropping a gigantic rock on Earth. Well, that's the thing. I mean, do you bring the whole asteroid back? And if so, how do you get permission to bring it back? If not, you know, what kind of spacecraft do you send out there? How do you mine the asteroid? And that industry, while it has enormous potential, is really in its infancy. The thing that happens before that is they go out to asteroids maybe after they learn how to do this on the moon and, and they get water from asteroids mm-hmm. and again use that as propellant to bootstrap yourself out deeper into the solar system. But, you know, this technology is, as I said, really in its infancy. And while there are businesses like planetary resources that have been set up ostensibly to go out and mine asteroids, I don't foresee them mining asteroids within the next two or three decades. Right. So basically, if, if it's not NASA funded? I think NASA is going to have to be a first mover in almost right. any of these technologies because they're extraordinarily expensive. Spaceflight is not cheap. It's very expensive. And especially when you try to go you know, beyond low Earth orbit. I mean, there has never been a private spacecraft that's gone beyond low Earth orbit. What we really need is Epstein drives. We do need new kinds of propulsion that use less fuel, and there's avid work going on with regard to that in some areas, but those are, and and NASA, to its credit, is funding some of those technologies like the Vasimir plasma-based engine, hall thrusters, things like that. The the what-the-fuck drive? No, well, that physics, challenging physics drive, yeah, I, I don't have much faith in that. But this stuff moves pretty slowly, and at this point, there's no real strong business this case to go far beyond the moon and so i think that that's where we're going to be for quite some time as a space expert are you able to adequately suspend your disbelief when you when you watch science fiction like this or for the most part yes you know it's a movie they're taking some liberties with the physics and with the sort of state of play with the hardware like you know the chinese space station that you know they used in um, gravity you know doesn't exist yet that kind of thing but you know i yeah it doesn't really bother me that much. I enjoy it. You know, I thought gravity, frankly, for all of the errors it took, I thought gravity was fantastic. And then it gave you a real sense of, of what it was like to be in the environment of space, which is to say, you know, you're one critical mistake away from dying. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is an extremely hazardous environment. And, you know, you've got to protect against that at all time. And I, I think people have a conception that they hear space is hard and, and, okay, space is hard, but maybe don't really understand 
that, yeah, it really is hard and it really is life and death. And you have to take all of these precautions if you want to keep people alive in space for any period of time. I mean, we don't even know, in fact, if it's possible for a man and a woman, if they conceive in space, for, for that baby to be born. Could a baby be born in microgravity? That's, that's a brilliant question. There's all sorts of complex interplay with gravitational pull and which way, which way is down when embryos are gestating. Yeah, and if not, how much gravity do you need? Is there enough gravity on Mars, one-third? Is there enough gravity on the moon, one-sixth? Is there enough gravity on Ceres? We don't have any idea. And part of that is because there's a kind of a taboo on human sex studies on Earth, let alone in space. You're right. It's difficult enough to get that through the NSF without Congress raising an eyebrow. Now, when you want to send them into space first, questions would be asked. Yes, exactly. So while we're pretty confident that men and women have had sex in space before on the space shuttle and on other places up there, you know, there's no official documents of the effect of that or and, and certainly the no 100 mile high club the 100 the 200 the 300 mile high club yeah exactly eric i think that might be a great place to stop thanks a lot okay my pleasure next up we have an interview between john timmer and stephen Strait, who plays holden on the show hi this is john timmer coming to you from the nbc story in 30 rock and we're here talking with stephen Strait who plays Holden on The Expanse. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So how much of a science fiction fan were you before getting this role? I was a pretty big science fiction fan. I had actually read the books before I even knew it was being adapted. So yeah, I read the first two uh, prior, but I've always been a big fan of uh, Philip K. Dick, early Ridley Scott stuff in particular, you know, Blade Runner, you know, Alien. You know, which obviously had a huge influence, especially visually on this show, uh, in terms of that realism, that kind of gritty, it's not so comfortable out in space theme, you know, like that thing. Uh, but yeah, I was a big fan, big fan. Just to let our listeners know where you're coming from, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Okay, why is that? Because Star Wars in many ways is like, a, it's fantasy, you know, it's like, it's a science fiction fantasy thing. And, and growing up, I mean, it's got these very broad kind of heroic themes that are very kind of archetypal in a very, uh, a superhero way or like a Greek god kind of way, or, you know, like there's like these very very overarching themes that I really connected to as a kid. And I just thought, you know, the special effects and the scope of it was just so cool. I, you know, never seen anything like that before. You've said you've read the book, so you have some idea of what's coming for your characters. Does that make it easier or harder to sort of sit in these scenes where things are being revealed to you? I, I was very careful not to read past where I knew the first season was going. So, like, I, I read the first two, and I guess we end the first season about three-fourths of the way through the first book but the first two books especially for Holden it was important for me to mine them just in terms of understanding his backstory to justify everything that happens Um, so I just I was digging essentially through these books just for you know a history that I could build for this guy that um, that when you meet him every decision he makes is justified regardless of whether it's right or wrong uh, it's just that you, you can empathize with it, and it allowed me to empathize with it as an actor. But I didn't read past book three. If you have that in the back of your mind, it makes it that much harder to be present while you're performing it. So I haven't read past book three, but yeah, cra- crazy stuff happens. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I'm learning what happens along with the show, so it's all new to me. Your character's motivations are a major driving force in the story. And yet, uh, at least through season one and the parts of season two I've seen, we've only got the barest outlines of who you are and what created your character. Yeah. You know, how hard is that to sort of 
continue making your character empathetic and understandable to the audience when he's this black box. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think the trap for playing Holden was to expose too much too soon. And you just have to trust the writing. You know, it's like we have incredible writers and it's a slow, it's a slow reveal with Holden. He's a cagey guy. And, uh, you know, everyone on the Canterbury has referenced in season one, they're all running from something. Everyone's hiding from something. You know, Amos, Naomi, Alex, and Holden all have a lot to hide. And, uh, and they are. And Holden, his family history and his sense of calling, you know, he's born into a situation where his parents, all of them, have this child to essentially save their land. Um, so he's, he's almost brought into this world with a purpose that is outside of just a family unit. I mean, there's a political purpose to it. And he runs. You know, he runs. And there's a, there's a sense of Holden that he just was never given a chance to succeed from the beginning. And there's this chip on his shoulder when you meet him on the Canterbury. He's like, I don't want any more responsibility. I don't want it. I was born into it. I don't want it. Like, it didn't work out so well for me. But then when, it, then when the can goes and when it blows up, the hero complex turns, it, it's really fueled by this, inma- this incredible sense of guilt. And uh, he feels responsible for what's going on. And it's the first domino f- to fall in him becoming a leader. Uh, and, and it's not an easy transition for Holden. I mean, like, he m- makes a lot of mistakes and he stumbles and it's hard and, you, and he's stressed. And it, it's not like a natural, like, it doesn't just appear out of nowhere. Like, you, you, you're watching this naive young man turn into a real competent leader over over time uh, the way the way that it really would be all that comes down to just this one decision to log a distress call right. <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's it man i mean you know it's that one altruistic action to acknowledge that someone was out there asking for help and it, you know and it is it's holden's goodness there is a goodness to him that even if he is incompetent sometimes you you know that you know that his heart is in the right spot. And you know, holding that moral compass for Holden is I think, you know, what, what ends up driving him forward. And it's also what threatens to be lost in the second season as he gets more and more consumed with getting rid of the proto-molecule. That's the inner battle for him, is that is he going to lose himself? How far can this moral compass bend before it breaks altogether? The show starts with you rejecting a leadership position, yet somehow you're, you've ended up in charge. How do you portray that sort of, you know, the re- reluctant hero is a bit of a cliche, so how do you portray that and, and make it fresh? I think the key to me was, was the motivation behind it. You know, like I think with Holden, you know, very often you see reluctant heroes who they're one wisp away from being the king. You know, it's like they're there already. They just need someone to encourage them. Holden doesn't have any of the skills necessarily from the beginning to get the job done, but he has to keep rising to the occasion. I was hoping to show a very messy and unclean ascent into what he eventually does become in fulfilling his his almost destiny to be uh, a leader of something. We have the benefit, one, of time on on television, which is lovely. You know, if it's a two-hour movie, you have to you have to be a little more blunt with it because you don't have the time to do that. But we have writers who are committed to realism. And that really is the cornerstone of, of the narrative here is that, you know, we don't want to show one-dimensional characters. You know, Holden, Holden's got a temper. He's an emotional guy. You know, sometimes it leads, uh, you know, them into situations that are 
incredibly dangerous and it puts a lot of people's lives at stake. But, you know, you, you see him emerge and it's from pain. He is guilty. He feels responsible. It's that feeling of responsibility, even if it's not true. You know, like even if it, yeah, of course it's protogen, you know, all that stuff. But the way he feels about it, his mind is, is at risk by uh, by the end of the second season so um but that that was my you know that's the way i wanted to portray it to show how how it really would be i imagine myself it's like if me like an everyday guy just was thrust in this situation it would suck you know <laughs> it would like it like you would have to you know you'd have to really step up to uh, a number of different plates one after the next or else or else there's no choice it's like the circumstances push this man there's no time to think you just have to do it so that's what i wanted to portray and hopefully it came across yeah you come across as a humanitarian in a world where everybody's ready to kill each other right <laughs> exactly <laughs> um, that necessarily forces you into some compromises forces you into working with people you might not otherwise sure it's sort of a constant flow of conflicts how do you how do you manage to sort of jump you know, as things move quickly, jump from conflict to conflict. I try to react to each each turn in the story as presently as, as I can. So, like, you know, again, having the benefit of this amazing writing is key. I mean, you know, conflict is what great drama is always based on. So, like, to have these amazing, complicated situations to, to exist in, you know, it, it pulls you on every side as a character. So there's a, there's a lot of colors to play with. And I think the, the show does a really good job of illustrating the kind of the factionalism going on on a macro level within the solar system, reflecting within the personal relationships on a micro level, even within the Rossi crew. I think it's also important not to forget, like the Rossi crew, when, when they first get onto the night in the beginning, they don't really know each other. So like, you know, we, they still don't really know each other in the beginning of season two. So as, as, they, as these relationships deepen, there are philosophical and political fault lines that, that emerge and you start to see that Holden is an outlier in a lot of ways because he doesn't take a side. He doesn't feel like anybody is responsible enough to hold what they found. It's hubris. Like, you know, like, these, like no Mars or Earth or the belt. There's no right person to have this. No one should have this. And, you know, I think he finds himself in a, in a spot where he's looking around at the powers that be and he's dumbfounded. He's like, I can't believe this is even the discourse about what this is. I mean, this has the capacity to wipe out or change humanity forever. And we're still arguing about this, the dumbest, stupid, like the things that we've been arguing about for 3,000 years. And yet there is something here that will get rid of us if we don't come together. You can use it as a symbol for, you know, whatever, climate change, you know, th things that that's an asteroid coming, things that don't care about your political affiliations. They happen anyway. It's a fun character to play because he is constantly pulled in all kinds of directions and it keeps it interesting and, and moving. Are you noticing some differences between the way Holden is developing on the show and what you've read about him in the books? Well, you know, it's a, it's a different medium. So, like, you know, we have the privilege and the benefit of having the novelists in our writer's room. So they know which parts to pull back or push forward because it's a, you know, obviously it's a visual medium and adjustments have to be made. I mean, you know, it's very rare to have the novelists of source material within a, within a writer's room and we've been very lucky that way because uh, they're on set almost every day. I think if there's one tonal difference is that, again, we have the benefit of time. 
you know, in, on television. So the character development can happen more slowly. It's a heady piece, you know, it's a heady show. And, you know, we've asked our audience to stick with these characters. And I think it, it pays off in a bigger way if you have the ability to do a slow burn because you really get to see the nitty gritty. You're not skipping over any of the stuff that makes them empathetic. You know, in that sense, yeah, we were allowed to dig deeper into these characters than the books themselves allow themselves because the books are really driven by the by plot and they're beautiful. I mean, they're incredible books. And we when we honor that plot and, and we try to stick to it as, as much as we can. But to, to be able to add on to it just maybe a few other colors and layers of, emo, of emotional development for these characters uh, really just rounds out the story. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a I think a really graceful transition from source material to screen that only was able to happen because we had the benefit and, and work of the authors there with us at all times. Yeah, the future seems to have come a long way in terms of gender and racial issues where nobody even seems to register it, yet at the same time everybody's still willing to kill each other over where they were born. Yeah. Do you think that lets you tackle some issues that have parallels today but you're sort of healthily abstracted from the realities that we're dealing with here? Well, I mean, that's the great benefit of science fiction, right? I mean, like, it's the, it's the ability to tackle hot-button issues politically, philosophically, personally, that if not masked with names of another era, maybe wouldn't be so digestible because maybe they're threatening to, whoever, to whatever the audience believes personally. All my favorite science fiction does that. You know, I mean, if you look at, say, even 1984, which is having a, a resurgence in sales these days, it has always been the genre that you can talk about, you know, what's going on in your own world in this abstract way and to force a conversation, which I think is important. If we're going to heal our tribalism and factionalism, it has to be through dialogue and art. You know, whether it be books or TV show or whatever, can force the issue. And, and at least it makes it a conversation piece and you help, you help that discourse happen, which you know, to me as an artist, it makes me really proud because it feels like it feels important. The work feels important, not just for the science fiction genre, but for the culture at large. So yeah, I mean, you know, we definitely uh, meditate quite a bit on the fact that tribalism is a human trait even when you get rid of race. So it's like it, it shifts from being... A racial or religious thing and, and it and it becomes more nationalistic and kind of geopolitical so like where where you're born is how you identify yourself it's part of our nature you know and, it, and it's and it's part of our nature that has always threatened to end us you know and that hasn't changed is there anything you have i haven't asked you about that you want to say i think this season if the first season was the kind of build on the roller coaster and it ended on the crest the beginning of this season is the descent and it moves really, really fast. So I hope they enjoy it. It's an exciting season. And Caltech uh, last week gave us an A plus for our science. Excellent. Congratulations. You know, Narain Shankar is one of our uh, showrunners. He's got a PhD from Cornell for applied physics and engineering. So like everything has to be on point. You know, it's like the realism goes from the character work all the way through the science. So like, um, it's really important for us, you know, it makes it feel real. Yeah. Especially, you know, since it's it's just sort of a few steps beyond what we have today, so it, it, it does seem to be very logical extrapolations from a lot of that. It's really fun, man. What we're showing on television 
is only really possible now. I mean, we only have the technology to show that now, and, and the budgets on television are large enough to do it. And when I think back to graduate school, the sort of CGI effects were just, they took you out of it. Right, exactly. And, you know, I, you know, I said this earlier today, actually, to somebody. I was like, you know, Bob Monroe, who is our VFX supervisor, you know, we really rely on him in a lot of ways because, especially just you know, personally as an actor, it's like I'm reacting to the green screen, and and if that doesn't look good enough, I look like a fool, right? So I, right? so it's like, why is he so scared of that if it doesn't look good? But you know, they do such a beautiful job, and you know, in a lot of ways, like, because I've I've been doing this a while, even though I'm young. I mean, I've been doing it since I was about 15. You know, I I did films for 10 years before I did any television, and. And my wheelhouse was always drama, and that moved. All the great writing, all the talent, everything moved over to TV. And it's like, we have the budgets now, and the expertise, and, and the writing to really like show these things the way they should be shown, you know, over long periods of time. It's like, it's like writing a novel as opposed to a short story, you know. If you have a patient enough audience, <laughs> you know, you, you can really dig, you know, it's uh, pretty cool. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. So be here next week and we'll talk some more.